Welcome to the Pursuit of Wellbeing podcast. My name's Maria Brosnan. I'm the founder of Pursuit and your host for the show. This podcast is dedicated to providing wellbeing information, inspiration, and support for teachers, leaders, and school staff around the world. My guest today is Emma Turner. Emma has been in primary teaching for 23 years, during which time she's worked as a classroom teacher in multiple schools and in many different leadership roles, including forming one of the UK's first all-female co-headships. She's the author of two books, Let's Talk About Flex and Be More Toddler. She works as research and CPD lead for Discovery Trust in the East Midlands and is also currently program lead for the East Midlands and Humber Department for Education Flexible Working Ambassador Schools program. Emma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Maria. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Great to meet you again. It's been a long time. I saw you at a uh, women's ed event we were both speaking at many, many months ago in, in London. So lovely to see you again. Oh, that seems like a whole world away when we were allowed all in the same room together. As yes. uh, now we're sort of broadcasting live from the understairs cupboard. In my yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think a good place to start is that you were one of the UK's first all-female co-headships. Why was it so important for you at that time in your life, Emma? Um, well, the kind of first myth that I wanted to bust was that I only worked flexibly from that point. I actually worked, I have worked flexibly in education for 14 years now, both as class teacher, a deputy head, assistant head. Um, and but because the co-headship was so different, people kind of pinpoint that as the, the kind of the start of the flex. But actually, I've been a real advocate for flexible working all the way through my career. It's just that the most kind of for want of a better word, high profile one seemed to be when we set up the co-headship. But at that point, the reason we set up the co-headship was because our head teacher left mid-year. He left in January. And my colleague, Claire, and I, we were both the deputies in the school. She taught in year two, I taught in year six. So we were potentially facing like, the head teacher leaving um, and then your deputies both stepping out of their role and potentially losing your year six and your year two teacher. So we kind of had to find a way around what we were going to do um, because neither of us wanted to step up into the headship role uh, for two very different reasons. Claire at the time couldn't because it was when you needed to have MPQH to be the head and she, she hadn't started hers yet. Um, and I was literally about to start I, um, IVF the following week. So I was thinking... Okay. With any luck, hopefully I'm not actually going to be here. I'm going to be on maternity leave. So um, it didn't seem right to take on the headship, knowing that I was potentially going to be stepping out of the role and therefore leaving the school in an even more kind of precarious position. So I read an article um, about a case study about co-headship that I'd found on a DFE website. And we presented it to governors and said, look, neither of us can or or are in a position to do this um, separately in the interim how about we do it together and our governors were really forward thinking really innovative and just went yeah let, let's try that and so we started the co-headship um firstly as an interim measure and then eventually it became this the substantive model for the school which is another story in itself um but yeah it was a it was a case of needs must we weren't deliberately doing anything which we thought was potentially kind of trailblazing we were just getting on with it. Which, you know, something needed to be done. And it's only now, with hindsight, we look back and think, we don't know whether it was just like the misplaced confidence of youth or whether it was just a case of we need to crack on and get this done. But we kind of look back now and go, 
blimey, we really did do something different. We really did do something innovative, but we never set out to kind of be smashing glass ceilings and doing wonderful things. We were just being very practical, to be honest, Maria. <laughs> yeah, and and I think that's what um, that's what really shines through. And so, what were the what were the hurdles that you said that your governors were really supportive, and that it seemed to unfold fairly organically for other um, people, and I'll say women, but other people in situations where they're looking for flexibility, where they don't have that kind of level of support. What would you say to them? What are your kind of go to pieces of advice around that? Um, it depends what kind of role you want to do, really. Um, I think if we're really going to embrace flexible working, there needs to be whole system change. You know, the view of flexible working needs to change. It needs to move away from simply seeing the only option as being a job share. There, uh, flexible working is so huge. If you say flexible working is job sharing, that's like saying music is only pop music. Yeah. Actually, it's a huge, great range of, of ways of looking at, at, at the same thing. Um, so the first thing I would say is, you know, we all, whether you want to be employed flexibly or whether you want to be an employer that offers flexibility, is, is we really need to educate ourselves about what we mean by flexible working. Because very often people don't realise what the options are. There are so many different models for flexible working, and that's the beauty of it, is that it's flexible. There's nothing set in stone about how you have to do flexible working. Um, but it's about finding out what you've got to offer the, the organisation, how many hours you can offer it for, what are your skills, what are your expertise, what are your interests, what's your experience, and then the organisation matching that with what is actually the body of work that needs doing. Because historically, we've got so many ingrained models of its class teacher, assistant head, deputy head, vice principal, whatever. And there's these really pigeonholed roles when actually what you need to do as an organization is look at the body of work that needs completing and carve that up to match the skills and the expertise of your workforce, both the existing workforce and the workforce that you want to build. So that's got to be kind of the whole system change. If you are an employer, obviously um, you could be a flexible worker and an employer but for the purposes of conversation I often kind of um, separate the two is to again educate yourself about what you could potentially do to innovate within your organization as well my um, trust lead he is amazing at thinking differently about employment and thinking differently about roles and he has retained and developed some of the most amazing staff by offering flexible working opportunities and creating different roles and that's why the trust is completely flourishing so as an employer I would say look into um, potential for innovation and as an employee also explore that to see is there another way for me to balance what I want to offer and how I want to live because the other way the other thing that I often talk about is about flexible living not flexible working I actually hate the term flexible working it drives me insane because it puts work first actually what we want is people to live really well because if you're living really well and you're healthy and you're happy, you feel like you can contribute, you're more productive at work. So what we're actually doing is facilitating people to live well so that we get the best people in the best frame of mind, in the best space in front of our kids. And that's what we want. So I'd obviously say read my book. <laughs> 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 it's just, 
stop in there. Of course. <laughs> Obviously. But what I what I did at the end of each chapter is to put a set of questions for employers and a set of questions for employees to, to reflect on, do I know enough about this? Before I start asking for a flexible working request or before I start looking at somebody else's, somebody else's flexible working request, do I know enough about it? Do I know what to ask? Do I know how to interrogate this? Do I, do I know what I can do, what I can't do, what I could do? Um, so the biggest barrier to flex is education. And I don't mean the education system. I mean, people knowing enough about it, really. So yeah, go and read the book or engage with the national, uh, sorry, the Department for Education's Flexible Work Ambassador Schools programme, which is designed to do exactly that now, to help other schools develop their own approaches to flexible working. That feels like a huge step forward for the department for even to be setting up that kind of scheme, doesn't it? Because I've had several guests on the podcast and it's a, and it's a common theme of, of flexible working. And I agree with you that I don't particularly like that term and I really don't like the term work-life balance. That's maddening as well. So I'm going to adopt flexible living as well because, of course, it's what we want to be happy and healthy and, and having satisfaction and joy in all of the areas of our life. So, yeah, flexible living is <laughs> on my list now. But back to the, back to the um, department's flexible working ambassador schools program which is such a mouthful to say what actually is that and tell us more about it there's a number of schools there was a process where you would we applied to the department for education they put out the the offer and you applied to the department to say you know this is the kind of flexible working models we have in our organization and these are the this is the support we could offer to other schools to share best practice so the Department for Education has um, appointed, I can't remember, there's eight or nine um, ambassador schools. Um, and they they are tasked with improving the range and number of flexible working opportunities in their area. So in our area, it's the East Midlands and Humber. So we'll be working with a number of named schools within our project, but also providing additional support to any schools in those areas who want to explore flexible working. Um, so I'm the programme lead for our section of it. So I'll be working with our operations director, Louise, who's she was TES School Business Manager of the Year for around flexible working and especially supporting women in the workplace. So there's me and Louise <laughs> flying the flag <laughs> for flexible working. Um, but schools can get in touch with their local flexible working ambassador school to tap into resources, things like policies, things like um, you know how to convince your governing body, how to educate the workforce, how to educate the leadership workforce about what's out there. So it's a really exciting time. And alongside that, there's another strand that the DFE are doing, which hasn't been released yet, which is a series of leadership support um, for exactly that, for, to support leaders in developing their approaches to flexible working. So we're kind of the on the ground model, supporting schools directly. And then there's a national flexible working leadership support program coming out from the Department for Education. So it's a huge commitment by the department because I think they've, they've recognized and rightly so, that we are hemorrhaging talent from the profession at a, at a scandalous rate of knots really mm -hmm. and flexible working isn't a silver bullet it's not going to solve the entire recruitment re and retention uh, issue what it does do though is offer support for those people who feel they haven't got an option to stay in the profession because potentially the default is still full-time or nothing mm. um, and the, the stats around who works flexibly in education 
and who doesn't are quite startling as, as well. And, and what are some of those stats in Emma? Well, there's just under 9% of the work of the male workforce who work flexibly in education compared to 13% in the wider world of work. So, you know, nine versus 13. But then for women, 26.4% of the workforce in education work flexibly. But that's compared to 42% outside education. So you've got 26.4 and 42. So when you're looking at what the offer is, what the employment offer is in education, you've got this huge disparity between the kind of work patterns that you could access outside education versus those that you can access inside education. And I know that it's a huge contributory factor to why a lot of people leave. They just don't feel like the models that we have within the education system align with their commitments outside outside work. And that's not just parenting, that's health um, issues, you know, mental, physical health, that's caring for elderly parents, that's the want to study, you know, if you want to do two days a week and follow a master's programme or something, you know, where's the flexibility for that? It may be that you have got a huge life challenge, it may be that you want to um, work potentially in another part of the sector that you want to do like patchwork flexibility sort of work three days a week in a school and two days a week potentially doing consultancy or writing or something else there's not that opportunity there in that wider offer and that's why people feel that it doesn't align and the the point that I always make and people go oh my god I can't believe I never thought that (laughs) was we have if you take a very basic model of graduates entering the teaching profession at around 22 23 now I think the retirement age for teachers now is about 87 (laughs) something ridiculous like that if we look at everything that would happen in a person's life between 23 and retirement it is bonkers to assume that they will navigate everything in their life with exactly the same default full-time working pattern. It's just not going to work for the majority of people, which is why people feel that teaching is it's not the most life-friendly um, profession for a lot of people. Yes, summer holidays often align if you've got children, but I work on a county border, so my children actually have different holidays, so I haven't even got that one. But it is is madness to think that we are expecting people to work in the same working pattern from 23 to retirement without building in, strategically building in opportunities to flex their working time as their skills develop, as they navigate what's going on in their life, as their own kind of energy levels change throughout different periods of their life. We need to be much more responsive to bring that 26.4, if not directly in line with it, at least the offer is there. At least people know that if that's what they want to access, they can. And do you feel, Emma, that this is changing? Like clearly the department is getting on board with it. What are the barriers that you're seeing either with individuals who are looking to work more flexibly or for leaders who have to adapt? Can you see that change happening on the ground? I do think it's three steps forward, two steps back. Oh, really? <laughs> Um, I have the most wonderful conversations with people in the flex space and I think we're making great headway and, you know, things are changing. And I know now that there's there's over a dozen co-headships that I've coached through the the process and are now established. I know the co-headship model is is developing. 
Um, I know shared leadership is developing. I know people like Johnny Utley and Sam Strickland are doing great work in the flexible working space as well. Um, but then I have conversations with somebody rang me the other day um, to say that they were a newly appointed head and they'd been to a, a trust meeting and the trust were trying to write, rewrite their HR policies. And basically they were trying to write in that every SLT position could only be full time. And this new head teacher phoned me and sort of said, A, is this right? And B, why? <laughs> you know? And so I genuinely think we're making great headway. And then I hear of things like that. And I just think, oh, my goodness, we've got such a long way to go. So um, people like Charter College and Women Ed and Flex Teach Talent are cur deliberately curating huge swathes of case studies of flexible working and, and what's working well. And I know the, the most recent impact, um, impact journal from Charter College focused very much on flexible working. Um, so there's, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of talk about it. There's a lot of work going on. But as with anything, we're at that stage where it's just starting. So although there's lots of anecdotal evidence that things are going, going great guns, there's all, equally, there are still some horror stories about what's happening out there. So there's plenty of work yet to do. Yeah, yeah, there is. And things like this take time, you know, that the, the, the sea change takes time, but then there will be a tipping point. And it will be, oh, yeah, of course we do. That's just how we do it now. And, and I can really just in the, you know, I can really sense the change just from conversations that I'm hearing about and that I'm having. So well done for your role in that and all, all of the people you mentioned in the space that are doing such great work as well. And you talked about leadership in there and supporting leaders and you talk about doing leadership differently. What needs to change? Um, it's, it's interesting because one of the reasons that I, I wrote to be more toddler in this in the beginning was because there was nothing out there that spoke to me. You know, I was a fairly young head teacher. I was a co-head teacher. I was either having or just had very small children. And all of the um, all of the books out there, all of the leadership writing, the narrative seemed to be full time, devote your entire life to it. Um, be present, be there constantly uh, and be kind of some kind of superhero leader. And I was thinking, hey, that's not me. Uh, and B, I, I can't do it because I need to be at home at seven o'clock to put the baby to bed, you know, or babies to bed. So I, I looked at what Claire and I were doing and I looked at what uh, some other people were doing. And I thought, you know, there is another way around this leadership narrative that we don't have to present it as that you have to be this superhero um, and that you have to devote your entire life, never have a, you know, a family life, a, a hobby uh, or sleep ever again. Um, and I just wanted to demystify leadership, really, to say that actually leadership is incredibly doable. It's actually quite family friendly because you're not shackled to a timetable, a teaching timetable, which was an absolute blinking revelation for me that I hadn't got to be screaming into the car park and getting a lesson ready and being ready at you know, 20 past eight for the first lot of kids coming in. Um, so I think that it's so important that different voices in leadership get out there to say, you know, there is a more diverse way of looking at leadership. We don't all have to fit this one mold. And if you look at the different communities that we serve, the different types of organizations that we lead, unless we say there's more than one way to do this, we're going to be shoving square pegs in round holes because 
every organization has its own unique fingerprint, its own little blueprint, and we need to match the right people to the right organization. And so you can't expect how somebody leads one organization to transfer directly to another organization, which is why there needs to be a much kind of wider broadening of the leadership voices to say, you know, you, you don't have to do it like this, you can do it like this. Or, you know, you, you can be this kind of person, you can be fallible, you can be playful in leadership, you know, you take your business seriously without being serious all the time. Um, so I just looked back to when we first started in headship, first thing I did was buy a suit, bought a suit and some high heels. <laughs> And what, what ended up looking like was like my toddler when she wears my clothes and clumps around the house. I was just like, stop pretending to be something that you're not. Um, and I think that people like Ray Snape, who are doing great work out there and who, who are talking about leadership differently, talking about a very kind of um, Dan Edwards, who's, a, who's transferred from secondary to primary. You know, they've got a very honest and very humble way of talking about leadership and one of my colleagues Halil Tamgumush talks beautifully about his first headship and the journey he went on when he started off in one way and then actually had to be much more authentic because it wasn't working so I think it's important to say you don't have to be one sort of person to be a leader and actually leadership is it's difficult it's complex but it's actually very straightforward um if you're kind of being an authentic leader, if you if you know what it is you're trying to achieve. Mm. So yeah, um, stop being a superhero. <laughs> <laughs> it's my it's my leadership take on things. Yeah, and there there really is that sense of having to be all things to all people when you're a senior leader, especially a head teacher, but not always. Um, and I, I love that idea of bringing your authentic self to it rather than putting on the the superhero mask and cape because we can see it now that there's such intense pressure on on heads and and leaders uh that's unsustainable it's exhausting and what's even more exhausting is if you're then trying to act all day on top of it if you're trying to sort of maintain this false persona all day it's thoroughly exhausting and you end up like a really bad tribute act it's like tonight Matthew I'm going to be the head teacher (laughs) you can't keep it up you have to be completely honest about yourself about what you do know what you don't know you have to seek help for the things that you you really can't do because that's the other thing when you first start in leadership you don't know everything you you can't possibly know everything You, you are learning in that leadership role and so it's so important to be honest about that Um, because there's nothing more stressful than trying to pretend that you know something when you don't. Um, So actually reaching out to people, building those networks, finding those connections, seeking help when parts of the job are scary, because some parts of the job are frankly terrifying. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is always somebody out there to help you. What you don't have to do is save the world on your own. You know, teaching is such a collegiate profession there is always somebody out there willing to help you support you share a resource with you talk you through a process point you in the right direction for something and that's what Claire and I learned as well if you ask for help you get it nobody ever turns around and goes can't believe you don't know that you know no, nobody never <laughs> you know people go yeah no problem you know just ring this person or ask that or here's a form with what you need on it yeah like, oh, thanks very much but I think some people get so raveled up in trying to be amazing that actually they forget that part of being amazing is asking the right questions of the right people and being honest about what you know. Yeah, and I think Twitter is an incredibly friendly place for that. 
you know, I see it day after day. Oh, does anybody know where I can find blah? And, you know, 20 responses in five minutes. Yeah, here, I'll help you. And I love that idea of the, the collegiate aspect of it and how you don't have to suffer in feeling lonely, especially if things aren't going well for you. You know, if you're feeling anxious or overwhelmed, really there is so much support on Twitter or, you know, anywhere. So I, I heartily agree with you to, to reach out for it. Um, and you talked about being more toddler, Emma. How did that come about? What, where were you in your life where you, where you decided to write that book? Oh, I was literally in a soft play centre. <laughs> <laughs> because I was, um, I went there and I'd got, I don't know why I did, it's just a moment of sleep deprived madness. I'd got a newborn, a two-year-old and just about to turn five-year-old. And we went to soft play I bumped into um, a guy who'd been the interim head teacher at the school where I was now head. And um, lovely guy, so supportive, really brilliant colleague. And he was there with his grandchildren. He introduced, we introduced the children and we were chatting away. It was lovely. And I was like, oh, so nice to see you. So nice to see you. And he said, you know, you were always going to do great things. You were always going to do this. You were always going to do that. You were so this, you were so that. So good to see you. Um, and then I went into the soft play thing and I sat there and I was going to text Claire and go, guess who I've just seen. And then I suddenly thought, everything he said about me was in the past tense. Like, you were great. You were going to do this. You were, and, and it's almost like he would never have implied this He would because he's not that kind of guy. But it was like, but this is you now. This is now mum. And I was a bit deflated, to be perfectly honest, because I felt like, as it says in the book, the leadership stardust had faded. It was just like, well, now you're at this point in your life, you need to step outside the leadership uh, race kind of thing. And I sat there in this ball pool feeling a bit hormonal and dejected. <laughs> and uh, then my two-year-old kept climbing up this staircase and falling down, climbing up, fall down, climb up, fall down. And I just thought, you know what? I need to be a bit more like you. I just need to keep falling down and getting up again and, and climbing and not, not being put off at that wall that she's trying to scale is 50 times bigger than her you know she she doesn't care she's just going to keep on keeping on until she gets, gets the top of that and I was kind of like pulling her up by the back of her trousers as you do with the toddler and putting them back on their feet and I thought you know I don't have anybody to pull me up by my waistband and stand me back on my feet and I thought there's, if I feel like that there's bound to be lots of other people who feel like they haven't got anyone to pull them up by their waistband and that's why I wrote Be More Toddler, because I started to look at my children and I thought, you've changed every aspect of the way our family functions, the way we eat, the way we sleep or not sleep, um, where we go, how the house is organised, the things we do as a family. Um, you have created whole scale organisational change and you can't even speak or use a toilet. <laughs> and I thought, if you know how do they do that and I started analyzing what toddlers actually do to to cause whole scale change and I recognized that a lot of what they do are aspects of great leadership in schools which is where the be more toddler came about it there's another story about why I actually wrote the book at speed but we'll save that for Oh no, don't leave us hanging, Emma, please. <laughs> I've had the idea for a presentation for for um uh, event event that was at and I presented this idea of being more toddler. I'd been kind of ruminating over it, thinking about it. And I put it together. And I'd done a really lovely thing with all pictures of my family on there. And the, you know, the day I had the baby. And, 
um, shared it all and it was very emotional and um, everybody was writing lots of things and, and a man came up to me at the end of it, very well-known educationalist and, and said, that's a really good idea, that be more toddler idea. I think I'm going to write about that. What? <laughs> and I genuinely had this moment where I thought, please don't steal my children. And I um, and I lied to him and I went, well, you can't because I've already got a book deal. <laughs> Which was a complete lie. <laughs> but I thought, I can't let you write about this. This no. is my lived experience. These are my children. So then I had to find out how to get a book deal get the book deal and then write the book which I'd only got like a few powerpoint slides to turn into a book but I'd so got the specter of this chap on my shoulder who was potentially also writing that I just wrote the book in nine days I just oh my god every night after the kids went to bed I just rattled the whole thing off sent it off because I had this worry that this chap who'd been at this event was just going to come up and and steal my children so that's the real reason the book came about (laughs) I love that I love that oh my god what a great story and you know what I love about the book I have a copy of it right beside me and well I'll just pull out one very short example but it's written at least the first section of it is written as you described as your as your two-year-old was learning to climb and etc those kinds of examples but one that I really loved was when children are in the car saying when are we going to get there? Like that idea of it's we, like we're all in the car together and we're all going somewhere. And even though I'm bored or tired or need to loo or whatever a, a child needs, they're still so acutely aware that they're that you're all together. And um, how do you, if you would tell our listeners, how you relate that to leadership? Yeah, checking in, not checking up, that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. But, it was the fact that when you're in a car as a family and going somewhere and, you know, they're, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? There was no, they never say, am I there yet? They always say, are we there yet? Uh, you know, they, they know where we're going. You know, we're going to either we're going to the Holiday Park Village or we're going to Grandma's or we're going to the seaside or whatever it is. And they recognise that we get there as a team. You know, because we're all in this same car, nobody's ever going to get there quicker than anybody else. You know, they're not going to get out of the car and run, although there have been some car journeys where I've wanted to do that. <laughs> <laughs> if you read the book, you'll know why. Um, but it was this fact that as in leadership, that's what we need to do. We need to check in with people and go, right, we're all going on this journey together. How far have we got? You know, what progress have we made? How much further do we need to go? What do we need in order to get there? Do we need to turn the stereo up, have another snack, stop for a week? what do we what do we need to do as an organization and then when we're checking in you know kids don't say daddy how many miles have you driven that's not good enough that's not (laughs) fast enough you know they they just say are we there yet you know how far along the journey are we and that's what we need to channel in leadership checking in with people not checking up on people and I talk about the fact that um we just need to ask how's it going a lot more rather than what have you done Yes. Um, and, and that's the big change from kind of monitoring, micromanaging and monitoring people. And of, of course, you do need to check that, you know, systems are being adhered to and you know, things are being turned in on you know, statutory requirements are actually met and turned in on time. But actually, the conversations that you have need to be much more developmental in terms of right, how far along this journey are we? What do we need in order to, to make more progress to get there and as a as a group, as a team? Because there's, you know, 
even if your you know, your year six teacher is the most stellar teacher in the world, they're not going to carry the whole school. You know, even if the deputy head is the most on fire deputy head you've ever met, they're not going to carry the whole school. Everybody in an organization is in that car and you have to get there together. So the work that you do needs to check in with people to help move them along like that. So, yeah, that's, that's one of my favorite chapters as well, checking in, not checking up. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Emma, as we start to wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything you'd like to mention that you're working on? I've got another two books on the go at the moment. One's a kind of a on the down low, quieter version with um, writing with a very well-known couple of secondary colleagues um, <clears throat> about uh, CPD in practice. And then the other one that I've got at the moment is I'm writing another book about teaching in the primary classroom in mixed age classes. Um, so there'll be a book coming out about adaptive practice for mixed age classes but I'm also busy with new ed which are which are set up on the back of we're talking about collegiate being collegiate I attended so many great events like brew eds and uh, women ed events that I set up new ed which was um, a not-for-profit CPD free CPD for early career teachers and recently did new ed leaders which was uh, free CPD for aspirant or newly appointed leaders which was an absolute absolute barnstormer of a day <laughs> it was brilliant and if you go to at new ed events i think the live stream is still the pin tweet there so you can watch the most amazing lineup of people and then there's the mind the gap john cat kind of video cast that i do with tom sherrington which comes out um i think we do i think it comes out weekly but i have to think about this because we don't record weekly <laughs> it comes out weekly and i think recently we've had johnny utley john thompson benny cara on and we're interviewing abby bayford about her letters to my nqt self book next week so lots of things going on amazing amazing well emma thank you so much for for joining us on the podcast today it's been a joy speaking with you Thank you. It's been a lovely way to spend a lovely sunny morning. So thank yeah. you. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Well, I've been speaking with Emma Turner. You can connect with Emma on Twitter at Emma underscore Turner 75. And you can find her two books, Let's Talk About Flex and Be More Toddler in all the usual places that you find great books. Emma, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Have a lovely day, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. Now check out our website, pursuitwellbeing.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, please hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you feel inspired, please rate and review it and share it with your friends. I love getting your feedback and learning how we can improve our program.